the um, I don't think actually it's I realized that I'm about to say something that I don't know for absolute certain is true, but I will know in a minute. Um, it's absolutely certainly true that all the reading for Tuesday, I knew it, is in this book. That is a few poems by Bailey and a few poems by Barbo. Um, so uh, that's, um, that's what you should read. Um, they weren't really um, quasi-canonized until the last 20 years or so, and this book is from the early 70s, I think. Um, yeah, 73, early 70s. Um, so uh, are you guys, as they say about George Bush, are you missing Rochester yet? No? What are we thinking of, well, Goldsmith and Cooper? Not pronounced Cowper, pronounced Cooper. Is Tybalt also spelled Theobald? Yes. Oh, okay. Spelled Theobald, but pronounced Tybalt. How did that come up? Are we back in the Dunciad? Oh, no, um, I just Oh, remember. you just want to know about pronunciation? Yeah. Yeah. And I assumed it was Tybalt, but... Yeah, kind of yeah, it's like Chumley's. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what do you think? Kind of boring. <laughs> okay, kind of boring. Cooper 2, all of it? I, I like Cooper. All of it or some of it? Some of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, not the task, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, um, the little brief about Goldsmith, I think, was kind of, it made me not like Goldsmith from the start. Like, <laughs> he was such a pretentious snob and everything, so like, there's a great moment in Shelley's defense of poetry. Well, it's all great. One of the um, infinite number of great moments in Shelley's defense of poetry is um, a recommendation, a very strong and urgent um, protest against judging a poet by the person they are biographically. Um, and he starts listing great poets and great writers and um, he says, you won't, go, you won't go against Francis Bacon because he was an embezzler or against Ben Johnson because he was a murderer. He lists four or five different things, which is true about people. And finally says, or Edmund Spencer because he was a poet laureate. Um, <laughs> these, are not, these, these have nothing to do with what they are as poets. So yeah, you can say that about Goldsmith. He, um, uh, there are issues. There are issues with almost everyone we're reading. Um, but he's... Uh, if you only if you only read the Deserted Village, which of course you didn't because you read both books, right? But if you only read the Deserted Village, I think what you would get is a strong, strong sense of um, Goldsmith as actually a pretty powerful um, writer against the rich, um, and in particular against enclosure. That is um, the 18th century, the revolutionary and terrible. Well, I don't know, progressive. It led to progress, but it led to incredible pain um, of enclosing what had been common land, what had been the commons and um, uh, land that, <coughs> that the peasantry could share. Um, enclosure was um, a major and um, a major economic um, and, and sociological and cultural shift. Uh, the Deserted Village is um, a very vivid 
um, picture of something that happened all over England with enclosure. It's one of the things, actually, that in Capital, Das Kapital, um, Marx uh, spends a good deal of time writing about what happens um, with enclosure, how impressive enclosure is. So in the social economic history of England, enclosure is one of the um, major events. Um, the fact of enclosure is one of the major events, um, and it completely changed um, um, the English economy, English society, English um, class, English social history, English class relations, um, and was really, really, really oppressive to those who weren't rich. And Goldsmith, I think, is, it writes with um, very great passion and um, and communicates um, the um, the damage done by enclosure. I think that as a document, and I think it's a it's a very good poem, um, but also as a document of economic and social history, it's um, a very telling. Poem, a very telling account um, from a contemporary of what those days were like. It's almost as though history has entered into, re-entered into the descriptive poem. Um, what I mean by that is that we've been talking about for the last um, few days um, the way the proto-romantic poets were reading, um, pretty much starting with Thompson. Um, are reacting against lots of aspects of the topicality of Dryden and Pope and Swift, the urbanity in both senses of those poets. That is that they are um, writing about cities and they're also very urbane in the way they write about cities and about city life and about modern life. And then you get to um, people who are reacting against them, like Thompson, um, whom we started with in the seasons and... Um, to some extent, Gray, um, certainly Goldsmith, certainly Young, um, who are doing descriptions of the universal, you could almost say. Not poems that, I mean, Pope, remember in the epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot, um, says that he started out as a great describer of things, but without any um, thought or relevance in his description. And that um, the implication is that for Pope to become Pope, for Pope to become um, the Pope that we know, he had to start writing poems about things that mattered. Um, what you get in um, Thompson, um, let's say, is a return to the kind of descriptiveness that we saw very early on in this course in Denham in Cooper's Hill, which we looked at um, not as a poem of description, but as a poem with, um, which in, to introduce the heroic couplet. Um, but a return to the kind of description of nature that, um, that uh, begins with what, what's called loco-descriptive poetry. Although Denham is also describing cities, but he's describing cities as though they're, or the city, as though it's a natural object. Um, <coughs> but then we get the very high specificity of the poets that we did in the first half of this class. Um, and after that, we return to a description of the eternal, the description of nature um, in Thompson, for example, in Young, the things that um, the little works of humanity um, just appear and disappear against. Um, but then when you get to the deserted village, um, something else is happening, something significant is happening, which is what looks like it should 
be eternal. That is, that life, um, that way of life, the difference between the country and the city is that the city is always topical. It's always whatever the new, new thing is. It's always changing. It's always about politics, and it's always about the specificity of politics. But the village um, is a place where people have lived the same way forever, <coughs> lived with a kind of simplicity that um, when it's romanticized, and I use the, the word romanticized in both ways, or is continuous between thinking, oh yes, this is really wonderful, people um, who live in the country and who aren't, who aren't pestered by the ambitions that cities um, inculcate and corrupt people with, they actually have happier lives. Um, and romanticized in the sense that it's what the romantic poets took as their subject, or what a lot of them took as their subject. Um, that romanticized way of life is gone. That's what Goldsmith is writing about, that people who felt that they had a kind of um, um, access to um, the immemorial and unchanging in celebrating um, the life in the country, they turn out to be wrong. The enclosures come, and that's that. It's a new world. People are driven to the cities and driven to poverty and driven into what will become 19th century misery, Victorian misery. There's a huge split between the rich and the poor. Um, the poems seem to me oddly topical this time, um, given everything in the, new, in the newspapers these days about the um, increasing imbalance of wealth in the US. Um, that's the sort of thing that you can imagine um, Goldsmith responding to um, a parallel of um, in, in writing um, a poem like The Deserted Village. And um, it's worth, although we didn't, we didn't really ever finish talking about Elegina Country Churchyard, it's worth um, comparing it to Gray. So let me just say a, a little bit about that. Um, in The Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College, which is also a loco-descriptive poem, um, in which we talked about that way, um, Gray, or his speaker, is looking at Eton College in much the same way as um, Goldsmith, and, and as you know, they were not friends, um, as Goldsmith um, looks at the deserted village. That is, um, a place which was once a place of happiness and of joy, um, but which now is no longer affords that to the speakers of the two poems of The Deserted Village and of Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College. Um, Eton College is no village, um, not even in, in the Brandeis sense of the village. Um, Eton College is no village, um, but it's still looked on with a kind of what, gets, what has been called pastoral nostalgia. So just to tell you what that is, there's a vogue for poetry. It's not a vogue because it's now gone on for 3,000 years or 2,500 years, but a very long vogue for writing what's called pastoral poetry. And what pastoral poetry tends to be is um, usually sophisticated people who live either in a court or a city or in a, some kind of elite society, um, the kind in which they're literate in which they're writing poetry, in which they're 
um, um, reading poetry in which they're in which they're publishing or copying out and um, um, uh, sharing their poetry and exchanging poetry with others, writing poems about how they're shepherds and how they spend um, all day um, piping on um, their oaten reeds um, and what a simple and wonderful life it is to have the life of a shepherd. Um, and the things that make you sad are that um, Chloris or um, um, Corinda or whatever has been mean to you while, when she was um, um, shepherdessing her, her flock. Um, and the things that make you happy are the beauty of the landscape that you're in. Um, so that mode of poetry, which is called pastoral, which literally means poems about shepherds, or even because shepherds are those who bring their, their sheep out to pasture. Those kinds of poems, which are called pastorals, um, always have the aura or quality of wishfulness, of my life is too hard, too complicated, people are too mean, sophistication, which seemed like a good thing, when um, when it was first offered to me, turns out to be a bad thing. People in the city are selfish and sly and untrustworthy and sophistication, or in court, and sophistication all leads to various kinds of misery. Another kind of life, the kind of Woodstock, go back to the farm, go back to the garden, whatever kind of life, another kind of life is one that I would imagine as simple and straightforward and offering the simplest pleasures, which are the only pleasures that can endure. And also offering um, melancholy and sadness in a pure form, so that um, when people, so that pastoral elegy is one of the um, most prominent modes of pastoral. That is, in English, Milton <coughs> is the writes the greatest of pastoral elegies, his poem Lycidas, um, but not the first in English, and pastoral elegy goes back um, to ancient times, but it's one shepherd um, singing an elegy over the death of another shepherd. And pastoral elegy is, I used to roam these fields with him, up until recently it was always him, I used to roam these fields with him, but now he's gone and I'm alone. Um, but the loneliness, pastoral loneliness, here I am all alone in these fields, I am lonely, that's a very pure form of loneliness. So that pastoral is a way of purifying um, human emotion and making it the most straightforward and direct um, kind of thing it can be. That's the wish that pastoral, um, that's the wishfulness that you can see in pastoral. And the very fact that pastoral, therefore, always in some sense, um, is the sign or symptom of a wish for simplicity is what makes it especially good for elegy because the wish is a wish that you can't have granted. The wish is, if only I could be with my friend and if only we could roam the fields as once we did how nice that would be, but we can't. So it's a very simple wish and a very simple denial of the wish because the other person is dead. So pastoral elegy goes way, way, way back. Um, and pastoral elegy is still written. 
um, it's it, there's in one mode or another. Um, the great contemporary elegies are pastoral elegies. Tom Gunn, who writes only about San Francisco, nevertheless is in a sense writing pastoral elegies. Um, Robert Lowell's um, Quaker, Quaker Graveyard in Nantucket is a pastoral elegy. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering what um, what the difference is between the simplest loneliness is and any other kind of loneliness. I'm not sure what the isn't loneliness just the lack of human contact, lack of human? Well, no, there's loneliness, um, which is when you're alone, which is solitude, and which is often, um, for pastoral and for the romantic poets, um, it's, it's a positive thing. It's a plus. Um, but then there's loneliness of loss. That is, someone you loved is gone. And um, with pastoral... The, the idea is um, it's always in real life very hard to um, feel secure that your feeling for someone else is actually love or that your mourning for them is unalloyed. Um, that is, it's um, as soon as human relations get complicated, which is to say as soon as they get real, um, there's never any any aspect of human relation that you can be absolutely certain about. Um, and you can never be certain of your own feelings. You can never be certain of someone else's feelings. All those feelings um, have shadows in them that you may not want to examine or you may want to examine but may, may not be confident that you are examining correctly. Um, there's always all human... Um, all, all human things are subject to decay, but all human feelings are um, are subject to misgivings and second thoughts and so on. And that's just a fact. It's not, um, you know, a, a a good way of thinking about this is not to be cynical. Um, a bad or a bad way of thinking about it is therefore to be cynical about all human feeling. Um, but um, I don't think you should be. I don't think one should be cynical about it. But if you're trying for some pure expression of grief, then you want to, for example, um, then you want to um, try to put it in a pure context. And a pure context is traditionally, and for reasons that are appealing to anyone who's ever wanted to live on a commune, a pastoral context is a very um, good way of providing a pure fantasy context for that, um, for the idea that, no, everything here is what it seems. Um, what It's not that people are jockeying um, to get into med school or to um, you know, get a better letter of recommendation from the pre-law office or whatever it is you people do. Um, it's... Um, that, that all we did was walk around all day on these fields and talk about poetry and sing songs and um, talk about what we love. That's all we did. Um, Shakespeare is a great pastoral writer in um, plays like The Winter's Tale, um, where there's a very long pastoral interlude, um, including sheep shearing. Um, and that's sort of where the whole tone of The Winter's Tale changes is in Act 4 of The Winter's Tale, which is the pastoral interlude. As You Like It is a pastoral play. Um, so it's if you just see what the um, attractiveness 
is of fantasizing that kind of life, Thoreau's kind of life. Thoreau is a pastoral writer. Um, he takes it very seriously. Thoreau, in a way, what he's doing is he's combining, um, you know, hard-nosed Yankee um, um, uh, carefulness and economy with the idea of a pastoral return to nature. Um, but if you if you if you think of what it is that's attractive about that, what that fantasy offers, um, what it offers is a kind of purification of feeling purification of your relation to the world and to uh, to others. And solitude under those conditions is a good thing, That but loneliness, which is different from solitude, um, loneliness is um, when the person whom you shared your solitude with has died. That's where pastoral elegy um, comes from. Um, and that, that's the mode of pastoral elegy. But at any rate, the very idea of pastoral is a return to, or a fantasy of a return to a fantasied world in which things are simple. The Garden of Eden being the first and most obvious example of that. A fantasied world in which things um, are simple and pure, in which feelings and work are simple and pure, in which you work hard during the day and then you have your evening meal and then you go to sleep. It's everything that Goldsmith is describing is lost in the deserted village. So, uh, yeah. So, um, sis, uh, earlier you were talking about how a lot of the poets we've read earlier were, were um, urban and um, pastoral is, is almost from their standpoint of like, this is what we've lost, this is something other and over there. Yeah. Is there... Is there a kind of like, if not pastoral, then just like rural poetry? Like something that rather than romanticizing the fields, it's just like this is my environment and this is how I must talk yeah, about there, it. Yeah, um, although in a way later. But the probably the, I don't want to say this with certainty, mm -hmm. but um, my first impulse is to say the greatest of the rural poets of that sort is John Clare in the 19th century. Um, and he um, he's only actually, most of his poems are, I think actually the majority of his poems are still unpublished. Um, but he, he made a spectacular splash in his 20s. Uh, he was kind of... Um, literate but but not educated that is he could read and write and he was a, he was um, a desperate voracious reader and writer um, but his poems are all sort of scrawled um, and if there's a huge argument about whether to publish them in cleaned up versions which is how he would have expected them to be published that is he would have wanted them copy edited or whether to publish them um, with all his misspellings and miscapitalizations, non-capitalizations and non-punctuation, the way he wrote them on, on slips of paper. Um, I think probably they should be cleaned up um, because nothing is gained um, for the poetry as poetry by publishing them as he wrote them. Um, Dickinson, who is also, there's an argument about how to publish her poetry. I think on the whole, she shouldn't be cleaned up. Mm -hmm. um, there may be some for spelling, but um, only because it's distracting. Um, but the thing about Claire is he's an amazing, he, he um, grew up on a farm, he was a farmer, and he's an amazing describer 
of real rural life without romanticization. Um, and he's still um, he's still stunned by its beauty. It's not that um, you know it's not oh these city folk you know they, what what they want to do is go to a dude ranch. Um, he really is stunned by the beauty of nature, um, but he also sees exactly what's going on um, in nature. He sees a natural object and he knows what's going on, rather than thinking, "Oh, look at this sweet little baby mouse." Um, for him, it's where's its mother? Um, it's going to die, and um, you know he can, he can tell just looking at little animals, the situation they're in. He's, there's nothing um, false about his description. So people like Goldsmith and, and Cooper would still be pastoral poets? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, Goldsmith had, the, had a sort of weird background and weird life. But yeah, no, everyone, we're, everyone we've read would be, um, their descriptions of nature are pastoral descriptions, um, for good and for bad. Mm -hmm. um, Frost is, Robert Frost is another interesting example. Um, you know, he's all about how wonderful nature is and how great it is, but he's also all about the fact that he has his own farm and works really hard and knows that it's hard work. Um, but he kind of thinks his way into being the wise man of nature, or at least presenting himself that way. Um, but Frost, there's, there's a lot... Some of um, Frost is a lot like Claire. Um, Claire is a whole lot like one aspect of Frost. Um, so yeah, that, but that, that's the general um, idea. And the idea then in pastoral is that it's by its very nature, since it's someone literate and sophisticated writing about something simple and unsophisticated, um, and feeling wistful, a wistful desire for the non-literate and unsophisticated life, by its very nature, pastoral is a poetry of loss. Um, how I once lived this way and how I don't anymore. Um, but usually it's about the individual person saying, there is this life that I stupidly turned away from. Um, how I wish I could go back. Or when you, if you look at Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eden College, it's there is this life that I stupidly believed would last forever, um, but it turns out that it was what I thought was natural, these fields, and it's always fields, um, that, that um, um, are the place that you see from afar, you see it as a field. So it's a place that you see because you're out of it, but it's a place that you were once in. It's, an in. it's a place which once contained you, and then you were just there, but now when you see it as a field, you see it as from a distance. So when Grace says, O fields beloved in vain, um, or, you know, when, when uh, you think of field of dreams, if you build it, he will come. Um, the whole idea of a field is that it gives you a perspectival view of a natural place that you once felt at home and which was open to all of nature. The word field, I think, would be a really interesting word to trace through English poetry. Um, the, um, 
but there's, there's a tree of many, one, a single field that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. Um, that's Wordsworth. Um, a tree, a field. What do they tell them? They speak of something that is gone. Um, so what it turns out in the Ode on a Disimpressive of Eaton College, it turns out that what he thought was natural, the life at Eaton, um, just being a boy and having fun and running around and all that, that actually turned out to be a very, very highly organized, well-administered um, and inflexible social product, a social structure. It's not that Eaton College was um, what the world is like for youth and, and, and the truth of the world, um, the, but that Eaton College is a place where you're allowed to be for a little while and then you're kicked out. Why? Because that's the way it's run. Um, because that's, how, that's what the educational establishment, that's how the educational establishment does things. It turned out to be an illusion. The same illusion is the illusion, strangely enough, that, that you get in the deserted village. That is, the village is like Eaton College. It looks like, I mean, in, in a lot of ways it's different, but let's just lump for a minute. Um, it's like Eaton College in the sense that it looked like it would last forever, that this was an immemorial life, a life that would go on forever. This is how people have lived and will live. But then it turns out, no, that a political and bureaucratic and administrative and social structure can, can end that life, can make that place a place from which we are barred rather than a place um, that we might have left but we would eventually want to return to and wish we hadn't left. Now, the, now, to split, the split is that Eaton College is always cultivated. Eaton College was never a wild place that somehow um, the, the um, bureaucratic state got a hold of and started kicking kids out of. Um, it's that Eaton College from the start, that's Gray's point, was an artificial place designed to look natural to the children who lived and worked there. Whereas um, what Goldsmith is saying is, no, this really was a natural place until the state and society and the government and um, the laws um, took over it. So there's a difference there, but the result is the same. This is over forever. We're gone. We look back wistfully at those times. Um, and looking back is looking back in both space and time. Um, that is, there was a time when um, I loved these fields and was happy here, um, but now that time is gone. Now we, we've been sent away from there. Um, Eaton is probably simultaneously more artificial and more universal than the deserted village because it's in early childhood, and this is something the Romanticists say, said over and over again, it's in early childhood that you feel most at home in the world and that you feel most um, grievously the loss of as you get older. 
So Gray looking back at Eton College is also looking back at his own childhood as, um, as something that's lost forever. Goldsmith isn't talking about childhood, he's talking about a way of life in England, um, the destruction of the peasantry in England. Um, so he's looking at something that, that's historical rather than individual, the historical passage of time rather than the, than the individual passage of time. But there's a way in which the Elegy in the Country Churchyard, Gray's Elegy in the Country Churchyard, um, is kind of um, the, the pivot or hinge between those two things because what Gray says there, um, it's very interesting to, to, to um, think of that poem, to lump and split that poem with Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eden College. If you lump it, um, they're both about others who were happy in their lives um, that Gray is looking at. He's looking at the tombstones of illiterate people. Um, that's what he says over and over again, that they're unlettered. Um, the tombstones at their best are semi-literate. He's looking at the tombstones of people who lived simple lives, and he's thinking about what those lives were like, and at the best, at their best, those lives were great. Um, on the other hand, they all come to an end, just as all the kids in Eaton um, are eventually forced out of Eaton. Um, but in a country churchyard, Eaton College lasts all your life until you die. Then you do die, and you die without having achieved what you might have achieved if you'd gone to Eaton, all those mute and glorious Miltons. Um, that might be lying in the country churchyard to take one of its most famous lines. Um, but he does think of the country village that the country churchyard serves as, as um, the, the burial place for. He thinks of that village and the adults there um, and all the ages and generations there the way he thinks of the children in, um, in um, Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eaton College. Um, and then Goldsmith is looking at the village and thinking the same thing. And, you know, the village, in the village, what you're getting um, is a kind of um, very interesting um, uh, trajectory of human life. Do people know what HR diagrams are? How strange. No astronomy majors? Oh, well, no one who's taken astronomy. So the way in astronomy, so you learn a little. A little. We, it, when you take literature, you learn a lot of weird astronomy. You learn what the seven spheres are, and um, you learn that the Earth is the center of the universe. But here's some real astronomy. Um, the way astronomers, you know, if you listen to your science minute or watch NOVA or something, and they tell you what the life cycle of the star is and how old the sun is and things like that, um, the way astronomers know the life cycle of a star, you might have asked yourself, no one's ever seen the life cycle of a star. People have only been looking at stars for three or 4,000 years, and yet stars have life cycles that last um, five or 10 billion years. How can they know what the life cycle of a star is? Um, and the answer is um, that for, by various modes of inference and in various ways, they will, if you look at a bunch of photographs showing the life cycle of the star, what you'll actually see is, let's say you see 20 phases of the life cycle of the star, you're actually seeing photographs of 20 different stars. You're looking at a photo of a very young star, an older star, an older star, and so on, 
until finally you get the white dwarf or the, the whatever um, this trajectory goes into. Um, they figured this out using something called HR diagrams, which essentially there's something called the main sequence where you can um, figure out um, the, where on a sequence a star is and that will tell you its age. And the main sequence was put together inferentially by looking at a bunch of different stars, how far away they were, um, how much they, how, what colors they were, and so on. And figuring out, you have examples of different, um, of different um, age stars here, but they're all the same kind of star, that, and, and now we can see how stars age. Um, or, you know, if you're doing a movie and you show young um, Charles Foster Kane and you have a child playing him, and then you show teenage Charles Foster Kane and you have a teenager playing him, although that Orson Welles doesn't actually do that. Um, or you show young Anakin Skywalker, and then you show older Anakin Skywalker, and then you show Darth Vader. Um, it's not one actor doing, doing those things, as in 7 up, 14 up, 21 up. Um, it's not one actor doing those things. It's several actors, but they're picked because they kind of look like one could be an older version of the other. So that's the main sequence. In the village, you get the same thing. You get um, babies, you get young women, you get, um, old, you get um, people playing under the trees and lasses and, and laddies. Um, chasing each other, you get people who are now too old to be watching this sort of thing, to be engaged in this sort of thing, but watching it with pleasure. And you get the whole trajectory of human life all at once in the village. Um, and with a kind of promise, this is what he misses, um, as with the, um, the uh, cleric, the, um, um, the deacon um, or the vicar, or whoever he is there, um, you get a kind of promise that this is the life the village offers you. What you have to think as you're reading the poem is actually a whole lot of these people were kicked out. Um, the very people that he thinks of as being kind of eternal types within the village, a whole lot of them were kicked out. When they get kicked out, they get kicked out as allegorical abstractions at the end of the poem. Um, only a few get kicked out as actual people. Um, but what looks eternal isn't in this village. What looks like you can lead your whole life there from birth to grave and lie under the sod that you used to walk, well, it's not true for most of the people that he knew. Most of them were driven out by enclosure. Um, and the people whose future he thought he knew turn out to have a different future from the future he is now remembering them as having had. Um, and that's what that's um, um, that 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 exile from a place where you feel at home, exile from a pastoral um, Eden. Um, that's what that's about too. George, uh, Gray, I take it actually went to Eden. Yeah. Did Goldsmith ever live in such a place? I get the feeling he didn't. Ask Tina. Yeah. Why do you get the feeling that he didn't? It's too pat somehow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a, uh, yeah. Um, but it could be the kind of thing that you miss. Um, yeah. Imagination. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he did either, but I can't say for sure. So um, it, it would be worth trying to find out. Um, um, it's really hard with, at least it's hard for me with 
Goldsmith because I do confuse him with the vicar of Wakefield, um, whom he's so sympathetic to, um, even even as he knows his foibles. Um, yeah, I should find out. That's it's an interesting question. Um, okay, Collins, um, excuse me, Cooper, um, is also in the part that you were bored by, a highly descriptive poet. That is the stuff from the task. Uh, did you read the head note? Do you know what the task is? Is this your way of saying, I'm going to read the head note now? Is you're pulling out the book and putting your heads and pouring into it your way of saying, the head note, yes, I will have read it. Okay, so... Um, he was, um, he had very, very, very bad bouts of madness. Um, and he, um, some of the poems that you read, supposedly, um, are about that. One of them, for example, um, on page, um, 700 of the um, Martin Price book is the poem called Lines Written During a Period of Insanity. Um, does anyone know the form of this poem, by the way, just offhand? It's something that, that you ought to recognize because there's some really... It's a rare but fascinating form in English poetry. Um, it's a form called the sapphic. And um, S A P S A P P H I C after Sappho, who invented it. So it's a Greek form, and the form of the poem is. Um, well, should I tell you in detail? Each it's in four line stanzas. Um, the first three lines, not exactly. There's a little bit of flexibility, but basically have the same form, which is um, trochee trochee or trochee spondy data data um, then dactyl then trochee trochee so hatred and vengeance my eternal portion all the lines have that rhythm scarce can endure Delay of execution. Wait with impatient readiness to seize my. And then the last line is always five syllables long, and it's dactyl and trochee. Dactyl and trochee. That's what it is. Dactyl and trochee. Soul in a moment. Deems the profanest. Bolted against me. Worse than a BRMs, buried above ground. Um, so sapphics are so. So the form of this poem is in sapphics. Um, it's a form. The reason I tell I tell you is that it's a form that if you're if you realize that you're hearing it, if you realize that there is a form here and that it's a form that can actually set up its own expectations of rhythm. Um, the thing about a sapphic is it always has a kind of um, sadly conclusive fourth line. Um, 
James Merrill has a couple of great sapphic elegies for his friend um, David Calstone. Um, Investiture, if you're curious, there's, he has a great poem about Calstone called Investiture Ciccioni's, um, which begins, Caro, that dream after the diagnosis, found me losing patience outside the door of our Venetian tailor. I wanted evening clothes for the new year. That's the end of the first stanza, clothes for the new year. And the end of the poem is heart-stopping present. Um, last five syllables of the poem. You've still arranged for me this heart-stopping present. So it's just worth sensitizing yourself to this somewhat unexpected and somewhat unexpectable but still sensitizable to rhythm. That sentence didn't work. Hatred and vengeance, my eternal portion, scarce can endure delay of execution, wait with impatient readiness to seize my soul in a moment. So hatred and vengeance want to grab his soul. This is his experience of insanity, that they can't endure waiting for him to die so they can take his soul. Damned below Judas, more abhorred than he was, he was, who, that is Judas, for a few pence sold his holy master, twice betrayed Jesus, me, the last delinquent, deems the profanest. So Jesus deems me profaner still than Judas. I betrayed him too. So think of the guilt and horror that he's feeling in this in this in this um, period of insanity. Man disavows and deity disowns me. So no human being will be my friend, and God Himself disowns me. Hell might afford my miseries a shelter. Therefore, hell keeps her ever hungry mouths all bolted against me. So heaven and this world, everyone is against me. If I could go to hell, I might find shelter from the horrors that surround me. And so even hell closes itself to me. Yeah, it's bad. Hard lot encompassed with a thousand dangers, weary, faint, trembling with a thousand terrors. I'm called, if vanquished, to receive a sentence worse than a beer end. So my fate will be worse than what the footnote tells you, Abiram's fate is. But the next stanza also tells you, Him, the vindictive rod of angry justice, sent quick, that is alive, and howling to the center, headlong, I, fed with judgment, in a fleshly tomb am buried above ground. So his body is his own tomb. At least he got to be sent to the center of the earth and destroyed. But my fate is worse than his. I'm buried alive in myself, in my own body. Um, so that's, um, things got pretty bad for Collins when they got bad. I don't know what, ever since I was in college, I, I said Collins when I went to Cooper. Um, things got pretty bad for Cooper when they got bad. Um, 
and um, the um, idea behind the task was to give him a kind of mental discipline. Um, a friend of his gave him a kind of mental discipline, um, something to do with his mind and to um, effectively meditate on. Um, something to So she said, look, write a long poem about this sofa. And that's the task that he assigned himself or that she assigned him. So the task refers to the task of writing a poem about a sofa. Um, and it's certainly not the greatest poem ever written, but it does have some pretty great passages in it. Um, it was a ridiculous thing to do, but in some sense it worked. And it got him thinking and meditating and um, doing the kind of what we Buddhists and hippies would now call mindfulness um, that would allow him to um, be where he was and not be tormented by, um, by a storm of thoughts and horrors and demons around him. Um, partly, though, I just the reason I brought this up is because um, I was thinking about this today, and I'm not absolutely confident in what I'm about to say, but, um, but I think it's true that we are now reading a bunch of poets, Smart and Cooper, by whom I mean Cooper, um, and Blake also, um, who were, and then Claire is another example, since I brought him up before, um, um, who, um, Claire, by the way, was always called the peasant poet, Leah, um, so he's, he, that, that was actually the, his, uh, he was known as the famous peasant poet, um, who were mad. Um, that is, there's, in the second half of the 18th century, and from then on, there are a lot of, um, if not the greatest poets, um, certainly just one rank below the greatest poets, a lot of poets who are also mad. Um, and um, Cooper is an example. Smart is an example. Um, Blake, probably not, although Cooper wrote him a letter saying, you're really the only madman. Um, you know, everyone thinks that, that Smart and I and some others are mad, but we're not. You're the crazy one. Um, and then, as I say, Claire in the 19th century, Beddoes, um, another one of the um, minor but still amazing romantics in the 19th century, Poe um, in some way or another might be regarded as mad, Pound in the 20th century, may or may not have been mad, but was certainly saved from execution with, um, when he was adjudged to be mad. Um, poetry and madness start going together, um, start being um, things that it's not strange to couple in the second half of the 18th century. And um, I kind of assumed that was always true because there are lots of mad songs that you will find in plays like King Lear and in um, ballads and so on um, before the mid-18th century. But I couldn't actually think of any mad poets. Tasso might be an example, but I don't think that Tasso actually wrote any poetry while he was mad. Um, but I couldn't really think of any mad, you know, it's, it's mad poets now, it's almost a cliche, but it's a cliche that seems to get invented 
Um, in reality, reality seems to have invented this cliché around the mid-18th century. Um, and um, it seems to me that this is a way, an odd but real way of registering the proto-romanticism of the period. That is, that, that really intense introspection, really intense experience of your own mind, which is a characteristic of madness, that really intense experience of your own processes of thinking, um, suddenly become um, available for literary expressiveness, become a subject for poetry, become something that, um, that poets will want to write about. Hopkins, who was not mad, but whose um, who's, who's, um, terrible sonnets, as he called them, um, poems written out of absolute despair um, about 100 years later, that's another example of that. Um, just the sense that, um, that intense, inward, hugely subjective um, mental distress becomes more and more itself a subject for poetry, something that, po that, that poets will write about. Um, this may not seem odd to you. Are you about to disagree, Tina? Yeah, um, I mean, people wanted to say it was true about Dickinson, but she wasn't mad in any way. Um, but it was certainly something that, that um, was culturally available as a place to slot her um, in people's minds. Um, yeah, I can't think... I don't know, Christina Rossetti, maybe? Um, some people wanted to slot her that way. I think that... Um, Amy Levy um, went mad, and I think she wrote about it a little bit. Um, but no one, no household names, for sure. Um, and um, it's partly that if you were... Um, female writers kind of had to make a living doing it. Um, well, that's the other thing I was going to say, is that it's interesting that you know, this sort of correlation between poetry and madness arises Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this is, yeah, that, I think that's right. Um, you know, when we do Bailey and Barbo, um, Barbo, well, yeah, I mean, Barbo, for example, was um, um, an, a very um, extensive thinker about, well, they were both extensive thinkers about um, what literature could express in human psychology. Um, but partly um, communicatively. That is, that they saw literature, um, really both of them did, as ways of, um, of thinking about giving a good perspective on all sorts of different human um, types um, rather than, than, as, um, than as conduits for intensely subjective self-expression. Um, but yeah, I think that is a really good point. Um, but then, yeah, then we get the 20th century. Um, all right, let's look at uh, Cooper's greatest poem, which is basically his last one, 
um, the one that he's um, still most famous for, The Castaway, which is, um, again, in the Martin Price edition, it's page 702. Um, it's worth... Um, It's just worth reading. Um, so as the footnote tells you, what he's doing is he's imagining, he's read a story um, that occurred 60 years or um, over, no, excuse me, 50 years, over 50 years later. Or he is writing 50 or over 50 years later than the anecdote he's telling about. Um, and the anecdote is about someone being swept off a ship and um, his shipmates being unable to save him. They see him swimming, um, but it's a storm. They can't turn the ship around. They try, they fail. Um, so he's lost in the sea and he drowns. If you think of um, the Pip episode in Moby Dick, um, Melville, Pip is saved for a while, um, but um, Melville is um, think it may even be thinking of this poem, but is certainly thinking of a similar sort of situation. That is that someone, and there, there's a Ray Bradbury story like that also. That is that um, uh, someone is barely out of reach and can't be saved. Um, and it looks like they could be saved, but they can't. Um, so what Cooper wants to do is, what Cooper thinks himself into, this poem written just before he died, what he thinks himself into is that situation. And this is partly a poem about thinking yourself into such a situation, into the situation of another. It's the last two stanzas that tell you why he's writing the poem. Um, I think he might have in his mind, um, I put a marker down for this a month or so ago, um, Dryden's preface to fables, where Dryden, um, remember, says that um, that um, Dido and um, Aeneas um, were, that, that Aeneas crossed over to Dido on the same seas that Odysseus sailed. Um, but um, they were the same seas, but they're not, um, but Virgil is now Homer. They're not the same poets. Um, so there's, there's um, uh, the question of what's shared and what isn't, um, which comes out in a very powerful way in Dryden, but even more powerful in Cooper. Um, the Castaway is, um, Wordsworth and Coleridge have already published lyrical ballads when he writes The Castaway. Um, he knows Blake. Um, they shared a patron or a semi-patron. Um, he knows Blake, um, whom he accused of being mad. So he then tells the story of the drowning of this sailor um, obscurest night involved the sky, the Atlantic billows roared. Um, the story, as the footnote tells you, they were, they were um, rounding Cape Horn um, when the storm came, and that's a famously horrible um, place to round in a ship. It's why the Panama Canal was built. It was partly not only how long it took to round Cape Horn, but how terrible the sailing is there. So obscurest night involved the sky, the Atlantic billows roared, when such a destined wretch as I washed headlong from on board, of friends, of hope, of all bereft, 
his floating home forever left. Um, so what's the crucial phrase in that? Destined wretched. Okay, he's destined, that is, his destiny is that he's going to drown um, by being swept overboard, which is just terrible. Um, also forever left. Okay, yeah, it's, it, that's all gone forever. He's, he's left his floating home, which is his home in the world as well as his home on the ship. Yeah. Why does it switch from Destin Drudge's eye to his floating home? Okay, as I is the puzzle. So it's not, a, it's not a deep puzzle, but that's the grammatical puzzle. Um, it's not, he's not saying I'm the one who was washed overboard. He's saying he was a guy just like me. So such a person as I am. Mm. Not I was swept overboard, but a person just like me. I can, so the as I there um, looks like it's a, it's a kind of um, poetic way of saying I was the one who did it. Um, oh, that a wretch, oh, that a wretch like me should, um, should feel um, the love of someone like you is a poetic way of saying how amazing it is that you love me. Um, but literally it means um, I can't believe that Tom over there is experiencing love from that person, since he's just like me and that person is like you, but you don't love me. Um, why should someone as wretched as, why should a wretch like me, namely Tom, experience, experience love from someone like you, namely that person? Um, it's just not fair. Um, so literally that's what it could mean, but we never use it to mean that way. Um, uh, what's this, what is the song? When such, um, how does Amazing Grace go? Um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sounds that saved a wretch like me. That saved a wretch like me. Yeah. So if it were if it were Cooper writing Amazing Grace, it would be, um, and that wretch got to be saved. Unlike me, he got to be saved. Saved a wretch like me. Didn't save me. Saved that wretch. Um, it's terrible. So yeah. So we all think of wretch like me, meaning. Um, as, as, a, as a way of, of referring to yourself. Um, but it doesn't mean that in this stanza. It means that he, like me, was a destined wretch. Um, that is, he was going to die. We all do. But I wasn't the one swept overboard. So obscurus night involved the sky, the Atlantic billows roared when such a destined wretch as I washed headlong from on board. A friends of hope of all bereft, his floating home forever left. No braver chief could Albion boast than he with whom he went, that is the captain of the ship. Nor ever ship left Albion's coast with warmer wishes sent. Everyone felt, um, blessed this ship. He loved them both, but both in vain. Nor him beheld, that is the captain, nor her again. So we know from the start that he's going to drown. Um, he, well, we know it from stanza one, but he never saw the ship again, never saw the captain again, nor him beheld, nor her again. Not long beneath the whelming brine, expert to swim, he lay. So he wasn't, he, he was swept underwater, but he was a very good swimmer, which is rare, by the way. He was a very good swimmer, and he got to the surface. 
So not long beneath the whelming brine, expert to swim, he lay, nor soon he felt his strength decline or courage die away, but waged with death a lasting strife supported by despair of life. So um, he swam hard. He stayed on the surface hard. He had a lot of energy um, to, to stay on the surface. But the important and great line there is that he's supported by despair of life, the energy which enabled him to survive in the ocean for an hour or so after being swept overboard um, was not hope of life. Not He wasn't supported by some forlorn hope that he would be saved. He was supported by his own despair. Um, that's what made him survive as long as he did, the energy of despair. Um, he was so filled with negative, um, this, this awful experience that it energized him. Um, and so he's supported by despair of life. That's a kind of one-line version of the lines written during a period of insanity. He shouted, nor his friends had failed to check the vessel's course, so they, they'd slowed the ship down. But so the furious blast prevailed that pitiless, perforce, they left their outcast mate behind and scudded still before the wind. So they stopped it, they tried to slow the ship down, they tried to turn around, but the wind was so strong that they just couldn't. Um, they scudded still before the wind. Some sucker yet they could afford, and such as storms allowed, the cask, the coop, the floated cord, delayed not to bestow. So they throw all the life-saving implements they have towards him. But he, they knew, nor ship, nor shore, what air they gave should visit more. They knew it was hopeless. Um, they were already too far away for him to catch on to any of those things. Nor, cruel as it seemed, could he their haste himself condemn. So even he in the water couldn't condemn them for what they were doing. So notice that our point of view has, has um, shifted now from those on board the ship trying to save him to him seeing them failing to save him. Nor cruel as it seemed, could he their haste himself condemn, be it theirs their haste, aware that flight in such a sea alone could rescue them. Yet bitter felt it still to die, deserted, and his friends so nigh. So there they are, they're so close, and yet he's deserted, and he's bitter about that. So again, the, the thing to see is, so Cooper is about to die. Um, I think, I'm not sure why I know this, and maybe I'm wrong, but um, I think this was written within a week or two of his death. Um, and yeah, his friends are so nigh, but it makes no difference. He's still going to die. Um, deserted, and his friends so nigh. He long survives who lives an hour in ocean self-upheld. So anyone who stays alive in the ocean for an hour, that's a long time to tread water in the southern Atlantic um, south of Cape Horn. That's a really long time. He long survived who lives an hour in ocean self-upheld, and so long he with unspent power his destiny repelled, and ever 
as the minutes flew, entreated help or cried adieu. So for the whole hour, he's calling either help or goodbye, help or adieu. At length, his transient respite passed, his comrades, who before had heard his voice in every blast, that is, calling for help or calling adieu, at length his transient respite passed, that is, that hour is gone, the hour that he has respite of before death, at length his transient respite passed, his comrades, who before had heard his voice in every blast, could catch the sound no more. For then, by toil subdued, he drank the stifling wave, and then he sank. So he's exhausted, and he swallows water, or inhales water. It stifles, that is, suffocates him, and he sinks. No poet wept him. So, if you're a certain kind of deconstructive critic, you say, aha, self-contradictory. <laughs> you're rolling your eyes. <laughs> Good, this sentence is a lie. <laughs> no poet wept him, and um, you're supposed to be brought up short by that, and supposed to think, well, actually, that's what Cooper's doing here. Um, and then he says, but history did, um, the truth did, but the page of narrative sincere that tells his name, his worth, his age is wet with Anson's tear. Anson remembers the captain. Um, so just the story which Anson tells, you can feel that Anson is weeping as he tells the story of the death of one of his men and tells his name, his worth, his age, um, which Cooper doesn't. He's anonymous in Cooper's poem. He has a name, some worth, an age, or did when he died. And Cooper names Anson the captain, but not the person who drowned. So remember, what we have here is Cooper saying, he's, I see him, and he's like me, and his death um, fills me with grief, both for him and for myself. And then he says, no poet wept him, but Anson told his story. And tears by bards or heroes shed alike immortalize the dead. It doesn't matter who mourns you. Um, if a great poet mourns you, that will immortalize you. Um, if a great hero mourns you, that too will immortalize you. And Anson did mourn him. But then he says, going back to No Poet Wept Him, um, He's saying, and this poem isn't about him. It may look like it is, kind of like you're so vain. It may look like it's the poem that weeps him, but it isn't. I, therefore, because Anson wept for him, I, therefore, purpose not or dream, discanting on his fate, to give the melancholy theme a more enduring date, so I'm not writing this because I'm weeping him. I'm not writing this in his honor or as an elegy for him. It may look like I am, but I'm not. Anson already did that. I'm not being cruel by saying that I'm not. It's just it already happened. No poet wept him, but Anson weeping him was quite enough or more than enough. He doesn't need a poet to weep him, and I'm not doing that. Because Anson did everything that needed doing, I therefore purpose not or dreamed, descanting on his fate, to give the melancholy theme of his death a more enduring date. 
but misery still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. That is, now he's telling you why he's writing the poem. Because, when, because he's miserable. This goes back to such a destined wretch as I. He's like me. I'm interested in him, not for him, but for myself. Because misery, that is me, the, what I feel, the misery I feel, still delights to trace its semblance in another's case. He is similar to me. And then, his summing up, no voice divine the storm allayed. No light propitious shone. So there was no intervention of God. There wasn't the divine voice saying, cease, O storm. Um, or the divine voice of Neptune, which he might also be thinking of, um, telling the storm that is bearing Aeneas to what looks like a watery grave to cease. No voice divine the storm allayed, no light propitious shone, no appearance of divinity, when snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. So he's saying what happened to him happened to me too. Not that I was washed off the ship with him, but that we both perished each alone. We Plural, first-person plural, were each singular alone. We perished, each alone. And in neither case was there a voice divine or a propitious light. But I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. So we had the same fate, only mine was worse, is what he's saying. Um... Yeah. Did he die of? What did Cooper die of? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Something I seem to remember it was TB, but I'm not sure. But I don't know why I seem to remember that. Do you know? Um, are you going to Wikipedia? Oh, yeah. Yeah, go. That, it's always good to click on the death part of their <laughs> outline. Um, Controversy, death. Always the same thing in Wikipedia. Um, Early life. Fame, fortune, controversy, death. Sometimes controversy comes after death. That's if you've had a good Cooper life. was seized with dropsy in oh. the spring of 1800 and died. Okay. What is dropsy? It's not flu? Edema? Edema. Edema. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> is there a picture? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's going to be... Okay. <laughs> um... So who knows what, what it came from. Uh, I think it's probably usually associated with like congestive heart failure, but it can be associated with anything. So they just call it dropsy. It's like... Abnormal accumulation of fluid beneath the skin. That's edema, yeah. yeah. Okay, closing this tab. Oh, so he's <laughs> drowning? Ooh, that's not... Well, a good oh. point. Um, <laughs> Huh, well, if it's congestive heart failure, it would feel like drowning, for sure. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I'd never heard that, but um, that maybe it is. That's, yeah, that's maybe a little too interesting. Um, sorry? I said nothing is too interesting. All right, um, anyhow, I hope 
even though it's not a flawless poem by any means, I hope you can see that it's a great poem. Um, it's also a kind of amazing last poem to write, especially after some of the hymns that you read. Um, uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. That's Cooper. Um, that phrase, it's, it's, he's not using it. He's making it up. Um, the Lord works in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty grim last poem to write. Um, okay, have a good weekend. See y'all, I'm sure, on Tuesday. It's mine.